0: Would you open in your Bibles, please, to Matthew 27? Matthew 27, verse 57. And if you are using one of the Bibles in the seats, it's page 711. I'll say if you're a guest here and you don't have a Bible, uh, please accept one of the Bibles in the seats as a gift. And pick a good one. Some of them are a little ratty. You know, sometimes kids get their hands on them, write more scripture than is necessary. I'm actually going to begin reading on Friday, not on Sunday, in the sense of uh, I'd like us to step back a little bit to the day of the crucifixion of Christ, um, because I want us to think about the tomb this morning. So I'm going to begin reading in the 57th verse of Matthew 27, and this is what it says. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. So I'd like us to think about the tomb. Uh, What is it? What is its significance? At the end of the day, a tomb is a hole in the ground in which we ultimately place something of no value. We cut a hole in the earth in order to fill it with earth, if you might think of it that way. The tomb is not for a person, it's for a body, it's for a dead body. Even here in the scriptures, verse 59 says that uh, Joseph took the body, and verse 60 says, and he placed it in the tomb. It's for the body. And the body just it passes, it's earth. Psalm 78, we read through part of Psalm 78 on Good Friday. This is what the 39th verse says. It says of God, he remembers they were but flesh, a wind that passes and does not come again. The 103rd Psalm is often used in the liturgy of a funeral. It says this in the 14th verse, he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The tomb Is a hole in the earth in which we place things that ultimately decay to earth. Now, on occasion, uh, on the body, there might be a ring of value or some piece of jewelry that we would call valuable. But the ring on the finger is not the reason for the tomb. It's for the body. The body is no longer of any value. Its value has expired. I'm an organ donor, so when I die, someone will... Gather from this body whatever may have temporary value for someone else, and anything else that's of no worth is what's going to go into the tomb. The tomb expresses honor, it doesn't protect a thing of value. If it protected a thing of value, it would be called a vault, but it's a tomb. You might say that a tomb houses death. Now, we won't stay sad for very long, so stick with me here. I just want us to think about what the tomb is. Let me add another thought to this. This house of death is not designed like a normal house. There's no fire exit in the tomb. There are no door handles on the inside or doorknobs. Because the tomb is permanent. It's your permanent home. Nobody builds a tomb with resale value in mind. It's permanent, it's inescapably permanent. There's no coming back. That's how we view it. People don't visit gravesides with the hopeful expectation of coming to something that's changed. <laughs> If you were to visit the graveside side of a loved one and, and the ground had been disturbed, you would react with alarm, not with hopeful expectation. You would think that someone was trying to dig up the grave, not the other way around. It's permanent and it's inescapable. And here's one last thought. In addition to being a permanent place of death, the tomb is inevitable. It is our final stop in this life, our terminus. We're all headed there. It's inevitable, the rich, the smart, the healthy, the virtuous, the wise, doesn't matter. It's going to happen. You might, by great exertion, extend your life by, in the balance of things, a breath, maybe, a moment. the grand scheme of things. Some people could spend significant portions of their life trying to postpone the inevitable. And even then, sometimes it doesn't work. You could get hit by a car. Joseph here in the reading, uh, he was, it says he's a a wealthy man. He's also a member of the Jerusalem Council, so he's a prominent Jew. He uh, clearly is well-to-do, prominent, good, perceived as righteous, respected by Pilate, or at least acknowledged by Pilate. All of these things are true about him, and he built his tomb because it's inevitable. This is the message of the tomb. It is inevitable and permanent separation from life. That is Joseph's tomb on Friday. A dead body placed in it, sealed shut, guarded by outsiders. That's Friday. Let's read about Sunday, chapter 28. Now, after the Sabbath... But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. This Friday tomb, this inescapable place of death and decay, on Sunday for Christ has become a place of glory, has become a place of life. Very, very different. There's in meditating on this Easter, I've I've been meditating around the tomb because on the Friday the tomb is empty, and on Sunday the tomb is empty, and yet the emptiness is so different. The Friday emptiness is so different from the Sunday emptiness. The voice of the grave is so different on Friday than it is on Sunday. Now, this is the high point of the Christian story. And I wanted to ask this morning, which is, what do we make of the story? I wanted to be thoughtful about how how people think of this story, this column of the text on your page? I mean, the resurrection is certainly marvelous. It is certainly a marvelous miracle or a marvelous act, but I guess if you can say this, can you say, well, that's all it is? It's just marvelous? I mean, it's clear that it happened, but it's not clear from this column of text what's significant about it, the meaning behind it. I mean, others have been raised from the dead in the Bible, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Lazarus was raised from the dead. Elijah raised someone from the dead. We don't celebrate those days. So what about this resurrection is so significant? How does this resurrection connect? What is the significance of this example of rising from the dead over the others? And what is this signif- why is this such a high and holy day for the church of Jesus Christ? You know, I sometimes wonder if people, uh, some people, many people maybe, come into Easter and... Uh, they come around this story with the heart of faith, and they read it, and they believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and all of that's true in them, and yet it's disconnected from all of the body of belief, the, the theology of the church, the why of the church. It's, it sits there as a story. It's a great story, but how it connects is, you know, they have the story here and they have the theology over there. How does it connect? That's what I would like to spend the balance of this morning on is how do we know and how do we know why this moment is so significant? And so I'd like to begin by... Uh, page numbers.' I'm looking at page numbers. in my book, my Bible, which is a little bigger because it uh, I have bigger letters for my eyeballs. This is page uh, one thousand and sixty one That's worth noting that there are one thousand and sixty pages in the story of God to man that precede this moment. Okay, on the way to page 1061 are 1,060 pages of lead-up. Understanding this moment is understanding the lead-up. I once there's a show called 24 have you ever heard the show called 24 It's pretty old now I guess it's about well we watched it for the first time last year We did not start with the last episode and then wonder about the significance So much of the story is in the lead up And the Lord leads up. There are, not only are there 1,060 pages in front of this, there's thousands and thousands of years of lead up. 2,000 years of intimate uh, relationship between God and man in, in these 1,000 pages. And the reference or the inference of many thousands of years before that. I mean, the book begins at creation. How far back can you go? It begins at creation and... Uh, This story of God and man says that God created man, God created man in his own image, God entered into relationship with mankind in a way that's entirely unique from all the rest of creation, and God placed the man in an environment of righteousness where obedience and worship could be expressed. God took the man and placed him in this garden, and in that garden was the capacity to obey or disobey, the capacity to worship God or not worship God. And in that garden, death was not inevitable. It was conditional. Worship me and live. The condition was disobedience was connected to the tomb. If you refuse to obey, the tomb will become inevitable. And we know that's what happened. The mankind disobeyed, and for that disobedience, they received death. And even then, and this is pages one, two, and three even then, in the very beginning, right at the fall, there is the faintest expression from God of a hope. This faint expression in the third chapter of Genesis that God will one day crush death entirely. It shows up. The only reason I can even say it this way is because I know the whole story. There in the moment, it's faint. And then, from that page, for about the next 20 pages, 15 or 20 pages The Lord goes on to describe in the story the nature of our humanness and our proclivity to propagate sin and to propagate death. So the very next story is a story of a brother who murders another brother. And like a ball rolling down a hill, and just a few chapters later, you're at this position where the earth is so wicked that God's going to start over with a flood. We propagate the tomb. When we sin, we hurt others. And when we are hurt, we do harm out of our own hurt. It's a vicious cycle. We are simultaneously victim and violent. By page 25 in this book, this is made clear. And then something happens. God engages with mankind in a really special way, in a very, very personal way. He begins to act with individuals, and concepts and themes and promises start to rise up that have really big implications. God says to Abraham, this, I want to bless you and I want to bless the world through you. This phrase, blessing, comes up. And then, not too, too many pages later, there's a, a this theme of salvation that comes up with Moses in the book of Exodus. This, this rises out, this theme of salvation. And then you get a theme of fellowship that comes out of the scripture, of God wanting to be with man, deciding to dwell with man. And then not too long after there, in chapters only, you get this entirely new theme of Preservation. God wants to instruct mankind so that this relationship can be preserved. These, these themes, blessing and salvation and fellowship and preservation, all by, the, by page 100, they exist in full in this story of God to man. And they exist in very, oddly enough, in very clear and simple ways. when God first expresses blessing, it sounds like this. Wealth, land, children, kings would come from you. Renown, honor. Things that you and I, we can get around those things. Blessing was expressed in a very flat and simple and understandable way. I'm gonna give you this land. I'm gonna bless you. With this wealth and these people, very clear. The same is true of salvation. When salvation was first understood, when the theme broke out of the earth, into the life of Israel and into God's people, it had very clear meaning. God is going to save us from the Egyptians. God is going to save us from the sea. God is going to save us from starvation. God is going to save us from peril and from the desert. God's going to save us from the giants. There's very clear, tactile, visible ways that that idea could be God is our Savior in the way that he fights for us. And the theme of fellowship is the same way. God literally, literally led them as a cloud in the day and as a fire by night. He dwelled in the ark. He dwelled in the tabernacle. When they built a temple, he dwelled in the temple. In the ancient world, you could find the zip code of Yahweh. On all the earth, the God of the universe is dwelling in the greatest building on the high hill of Jerusalem. That is where he is. It was clear. It's understandable. Preservation. God describes preservation with a straight edge in the Old Testament. He drafts it like a draftsman. Here's the law. Here are my statutes, my ordinances, my desire for you. Here's what obedience looks like and cleanliness looks like. Here's what holiness looks like. Do this and remain with me Such clarity, 30 pages of sacrifice clarity. Then it got mysterious. By the way, I'm at page 225 in my book. By 225, all of this is made clear. End of Deuteronomy. But then something happened. (laughs) Israel started to live life out with God and things started to go wrong. And as things were going wrong, the Lord was getting his hands dirty with the people. And as the more and more deeply he was speaking and the more things were happening, mystery rose out of these ideas. I don't mean confusion, I mean mystery. The sense that when God says blessing, I think he means more than what I understand. That starts to rise out of the scriptures. When God says salvation, why does he connect it to a person? When God speaks of an eternal kingdom, why does he talk about a never-ending king? Do you hear the mystery in that? When God speaks of fellowship, why is he not talking, why why has he through the same prophet described his leaving of the temple and through the same prophet describing his habitation in our heart? When God speaks of preservation, why does he say I desire no longer that you would need to know the law, but I would write the law on your heart? you would intuitively know it and follow it because I would put my spirit in you. This mystery. There's a clear sense from page 225 to about a page 900, 1,000 that Blessing salvation, fellowship, preservation, these ideas, which started very clearly and, and primitively, very fundamentally that they have they are evolving in a mysterious way to mean something entirely more and something wholly other than and in something very personal as someone, those concepts were moving into a person. You and I know it, we know the answer because we 've read. Matthew 28. They knew mystery. And here's the, the strange thing. All the while that their anticipation is growing, that God is doing something entirely more than what they thought. That when God says salvation, he doesn't simply mean us from our enemies. Why is God calling us a priest to the nations? and speaking of salvation of our souls, while he's doing something entirely more than what they initially, as that anticipation's growing, the historic relevance of Israel is waning. So the message anticipates a greater good while history is preaching futility through Israel. I mean, Israel does not grow stronger. It grows insignificantly weak. Israel's kings do not reign on high. They barely govern through proxy. The temple's destroyed. Think of the fellowship of God. The temple's destroyed and then it's barely rebuilt and then it's knocked down again and at last it's rebuilt by a king that is a pagan and a God-hater. And the law, the law is forgotten, and then it's remembered in turmoil. The Jews cannot even agree on what the law says. And in this futility, Jesus breaks out. That's what this is. This is the futility or the anticipation, this mysterious anticipation of what God is gonna do for them and through them and through a person, Jesus breaks through this in the midst of their historic futility. We do a disservice when we think of this, when we approach the resurrection of Jesus Christ as we need to worship the Lord because he resurrected, because it says right here, We worship the Lord because he's the culmination of the blessing of God, the salvation of God, the fellowship of God, and the preservation of God. He's thousands of years of anticipation, a thousand pages of hope and description. He is the man through whom God is doing everything for humanity. And he comes out of this broken tomb. That's why we worship here. It, this, this is not a marvelous thing. This is the marvelous end and purpose for which Christ came. Friday's tomb was inevitable and it was permanent until Sunday. And on Sunday, the stone is rolled away and Jesus rises out of it. The eternal, life-giving creator, God of glory, humbled himself and came as a man for the very purpose of entering this tomb and breaking it open. It's not just what happened. It's why he came. And this is our message to believe. You know, there really are, if you want to think about it, there really only are two tombs in this world. You're going to go to one of two of them. You're going to go to a Friday tomb or you're going to go to the Sunday tomb. You're either going to go tomb that is inevitable and permanent for you. and eternal separation from God in life. That—that That is the Friday tomb. In eternal language, we call this judgment. We call this hell. Separation from God. It's the emptiness of Friday. The tomb on Friday is like a womb of death or hungry appetite. Longing for your death. The emptiness on Sunday is because it cannot contain life. We are either going to the Friday tomb or we're going to join Christ in the tomb where the stone is rolled away and we will rise again. It's a pass through. It's a pass-through into glory. It's a pass-through into his blessing and his salvation and his fellowship and his preservation. It's so much more than being saved from your sins. That is a flat view of what God's trying to do. God is trying to be the fullness of blessing for you, the fullness of fellowship and salvation and preservation for you. That is what came out of this tomb for you. Victorious life eternal, union with God. God is for us in his blessing. God will never leave us in his fellowship. He'll give us his spirit so that he will never leave us or forsake us, but always remain with us until his own son comes again to gather us up so that we be united eternally with him. Preserved by the teachings of his spirit and the conscience that is left in us to guide us in truth and life. This is for us. It's not just about being good. It's about being his. And you're going to come to one of these two tombs. This is why, if you're new, if you're new to the things of God, this is why the Christian faith is a faith of decision. It is not a faith of exclusion. God is here to say, I have risen again so that you might have life. It's a faith of decision. Paul writes in Ephesians 3, he blesses us with a blessing that God might do, what he says this, exceedingly more than what we could ask or imagine. It's an interesting blessing from Paul. Paul why would Paul say, to us, the living church, right, to the church in Ephesus, but by extension to us, why would God say, why would Paul say to us, it's my hope that God would bless you exceedingly more than you could ask or imagine. Why would Paul say that? Paul says it because it's already happened. The mystery has become incarnated through Christ and has done the victory through Christ. God has already done for us what is exceedingly more than what we could have asked or ever imagined. He's gone into the inevitable and the permanent place of separation from God, and he's made it a place of deepest union in life for us. That's why you and I can pray for little things. Which tomb will you be buried in? It really is the only decision that matters. The permanent, inevitable place of death, or the fullness of the blessing, salvation, fellowship, and preservation of God. That's what's here in Matthew 28. Let's pray, Lord. We come to you now father uh those of us who are in christ in faith lord we're here now to be humbled once again by the fact that you have done the work and we receive it lord we receive it and through it you call us to greater living to fuller life in you help us to long for that lord i pray against lord uh, the flatness of bel- simply believing in Jesus to get forgiven, Lord, help us to follow Jesus to be fool. And Lord, I lift up those who they find themselves on the fringe of faith. Lord, I I pray that, that this truth would call them into faith, into right decision before you, into salvation and blessing, and fellowship, Lord, the fellowship you offer us, and preservation. And Father, if there's someone here who sits on the edge of curious, why do those people think the way they do? May they, may they see it here. May they see it here, Lord, and may they see it lived out consistently in our life. Lord, and I even lift up this morning the cynic, I ask, Father, in your power to move the cynical attitude and the heart at least towards curiosity. But you can do exceedingly more than that. You can do exceedingly more with us. Lord, may we walk into the tomb of Sunday so that we too might rise out in Jesus' name.